before COVID, there was necessary and big steps being taken towards redefining appropriation, right? <laughs> there were a lot of steps going forward with saying, what does it mean to really support this Black artist in this theater? What does it really mean to have a Black season? Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lord Tell. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. I want to get right to our guests because I have so many questions to ask and I'm so honored. I think he's a magnificent actor and let's just bring him right on. Let's welcome Shakuti Awuji. Very good. Very good. Oh, thank you so <laughs> much. I, I, I love seeing the miniature panic in every presenter's face <laughs> that millisecond before they say my name. There's a deep breath. There's a deep breath and moment of this could be the end of my broadcasting career and it's hilarious, but you did great. <laughs> Using how truthful that is, because I'm red as a beat right now, and that's absolutely right. I've been actually, I was rehearsing it all day. It's a beautiful name. Thank you. Um, I'm glad I got it right. Thank you so much. Well, welcome, welcome to our show. Thank I'm you. such a big fan of your work and your artistry. Let's just get right down. How are you? Where were you when the world shut down and well, stopped? Well, the world was starting to shut down, and I was actually in San Francisco because I got married on February 2nd, 2020, literally oh, on the day of the Super Bowl. And a week later, the world started shutting down. So at the beginning of the shutdown, you could say that I was probably hosting the last super spreader of 2020 in my wedding. Because <laughs> <laughs> technically, you know, but uh, yeah, I was in San Francisco, which is where my wife and her family are from. And my friends had flown in from Singapore, from Korea, London, all over the France, all over the place. And of course, everyone from all over the States. Because we thought at one moment it should be delayed because it's Super Bowl. But we loved the 2-2-2020. Two, two, we said no. Thank goodness, because if it were delayed, I don't think a lot of people would have made it. So then we came back to New York and pretty much were March 13th, I think it was, or something. We were in New York and in Harlem in our apartment and weathered the storm pretty much there. What, has it been like an extended honeymoon or has it like... You know, they say the proof is in the pudding, right? You know, there's this moment where you get married and you're like, oh, it's just the two of us forever you know? <laughs> it was a real baptism of fire because it's like oh wait, we're really going to find out how this works no yeah. but it was great and um, no it was we planned the honeymoon was supposed to be last summer and that wasn't going to happen so we're hoping vaccine allowing and stuff to go for it later on this year my sister lives in mozambique she's the british ambassador to mozambique and mozambique is 
absolutely gorgeous because from there you can drive to Swaziland, South Africa, and you know, you could do the safaris and then you can go to the coast also because the coastline is right there. So that's our hope. We'll see how the vaccine rollout goes, but we're planning to try it this year. Was the last thing that you were working on, I know you got married and you were in San Francisco, but was the last TV thing you were working on, did it shut that down? No. Or even finished? I very luckily had finished, literally wrapped. I was doing this film called Mother uh, that's coming out, I don't know, I guess later on this year. And we literally wrapped end of January. And then I came back from our wedding and I had to go to Berlin for the Berlin Film Festival. And people were still sort of like, yeah, there's this thing going around. It sounds like the cold. But I realized we were in Berlin at the film festival for another film I'd done, Shine Your Eyes. And you think about those festivals and the thousands of people that gathered. We're like, how did we not? I mean, given that we now know it was around for much longer than we thought, I feel very lucky. So basically, I was lucky to finish everything I was attached to before the shutdown happened. A couple of things I was supposed to do to start later on have been postponed and pushed back and stuff, but I was able to finish everything I'd started. Well, I was just going to ask, where are you now? And Right now, I am in Vancouver, which I've never been to. It's my first time. And we arrived here two weeks ago. And today is the first day post-quarantine because they don't mess around here. And <laughs> Canadians are very friendly people, but they do make it clear to you in Vancouver that if you break quarantine, it's up to three years in prison or a million dollars fine. That's going to make you pay attention. And it's incredible. You no, know, this is a big shout out to Vancouver. I think they had, when we checked last week, only 62 deaths, which is 62 too many, I know, but 62 deaths in the whole period. And I think there was like one person in ICU for COVID. And that's how being rigorous with this thing and people not seeing it as a violation of their rights to stay safe, you know, how you can control something like this. And so we got here and we did our quarantine. Every day you have to fill in an app to say how you're feeling and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And the home delivery business is is booming. I mean, those guys are doing great, you know? <laughs> like it's a whole different level of delivery from the days of Domino's Pizza, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, you can get anything now. I mean, or gourmet meals to the anything, Any time of the day, anything you need on top of it. And it's fantastic because they know the rules also. They know, okay, we'll bring it to your door, then step away. You know, it's all very, it's a new normal for a while. Rather than resist it, people have, found a way to live with it but today i mean my wife she sleeps in she's not a morning person at all i usually get up and save the world before she wakes up um, (laughs) but she was up early today she was right she's been doing her research right there the patisserie that that's got the brain ratings getting take out coffee whatever just getting out there and it was raining she was up before me ready to go you know so it's great to be (laughs) connected to the world again. So anyway, your question of why I'm here, I am here filming. I'm about to start filming James Gunn's new project for HBO Max. Peacemaker is how it's commonly known. The actual name is The Scriptures, but it's based as a sort of a prequel. He's doing the new Suicide Squad movie. And the new Suicide Squad movie, one of the characters in it, played by John Cena, is Peacemaker. So this is a, a sort of prequel of his character TV show for HBO Max. I got here two weeks ago and I start filming. Now I'm COVID cleared to start work. <laughs> I am so jealous. I want to do an action movie in the worst way. I think it would be so much fun. And I noticed on your filmography, on your bio too, that you did John Wick. I mean, like, I know we're here to talk no. about theater. But <laughs> you, know, yeah, yeah. you know what? The John Wick story, this is hilarious. I was late to the John Wick world 
world. I think about six months after it came out, I was in my studio apartment in uh, New York. I don't know, this must have been around 2015 or something like that. And I'm watching, and I just, you know, I'm saying, let me watch something on Netflix or something. And I see, I always have time for Keanu. I have a bit of time for Keanu. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I say, oh, this is movie. Let me watch some Keanu. And it's, it's John Wick. And I'm there going, oh, do you remember the old John Woo movies? Like oh, yeah. Hard yeah. Yeah. Hong Kong blah, you know, with uh, Chow Yun Fat. Yes. You know, the, the ballet, balletic, <laughs> using a gun like it's a piece of dance. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I'm watching Keanu do this. And I'm like, these guys have basically did for me for that hard boiled action. Hong Kong noir, they did to that what Matrix did to the Kung Fu movies that we grew up with. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, bring yeah. it to America, bring it to, and do it well. I'm there and I remember getting on the phone the next day to my agent and my manager, Meg, and I said, if there's a sequel to this, <laughs> and I'm sure she was like, "Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll just, I'll just call and say Chikudi Wuji wants to do your sequel." But anyway, she was very nice about it and humored me, and then. Uh, I'm not lying to you guys. It must have been a question of a couple of weeks or something later, maybe a couple of months. And I get a call saying, you have an audition for John Wick too. I went wow. in there, did the audition. I thought I was brilliant. And they never, it was one of those auditions where it's like, they're practically, it seems like they're offering the job on the spot. Mm -hmm. And then I went home and didn't hear anything about it. And it was like, Three months later, my London agent calls and says, um, there's this role in John Wick and it's the same role I went up for here in the States. And I was like, I've already auditioned for this. She goes, well, clearly they still haven't found the guy. So why don't you just put yourself on tape again? And I put myself on tape the next day. I got a call from the Italian because they were filming in Italy at the time. The casting director in Italy saying the director, Chad Stahelski, wants to have a phone call with you. And literally, it was, I sit and we have this Skype call and he just goes, look, you're the guy we've been looking for. Do you want it? We need you on a plane in a week. I was like, I'm there. But I didn't get to fight. And I'm there watching Keanu Reeves do all these drills. And I'm like, please put a gun in my hand. Put a gun in my hand. change it. You know what I mean? I just, I just want to feel like, you know. And then before this, and then this is what's funny about this gig, is when the breakdown came to me about, this character, I'm playing a character called Mern. And I looked at the breakdown and it described him as serious and tough. And it was like, why don't they just go cast The Rock? Why are they wasting time with me right now? Do you know what I mean? It's like, and I almost did an audition for it. I was like, I just, I'm at a point now taking myself too seriously. I'm trying to cast myself, which you should never do. Any actors out there watching this, get over this. The number of times my manager has said, an agent have said, don't cast yourself. Especially if the casting director knows you. If they've come after you, that means they're looking still just, and usually when you cast yourself, that's just the actor trying to prepare themselves for failure. You know what I mean? To some mm -hmm. say, oh, I'd never be right for this. Yeah. But I almost got in my way with that because I was like, oh God, this is going to be, they're going to look for a guy some six foot five muscle guy. <laughs> and then I actually did what you should always do, which is actually read the material. And it's then, it's hilarious. Of course, it's James Gunn. So it's hilarious. It's witty. I immediately knew what I wanted to do with this guy. And that's what I did. I said, take away all that stuff of what you think they want and just bring yourself to it. Mm. And I did that. And it was the, I did a tape like a week later. They said, loved your tape. Can you just do another scene? They sent another scene. Like a week later, I got a call and it was a straight offer. No test, nothing. James Gunn started. I was like, that's my guy. That's him. That's it. I mean, the biggest, one of the biggest things I've ever 
had, and it was in many ways the most straight. Isn't that funny? The irony yeah. of this industry. Yeah. And when again, it's for you, it's for you. Yeah, when it's for you. My dad has always told us growing up, what is yours is yours. It's as simple as that. There is no other logic to it. If it's yours, nothing's keeping it from you. And if it's not yours, you can't you can't force it. It's not going to happen. You can't make it happen. But yeah. the interesting thing is, as I was reading, took a deep dive into your life and career over the past week, and many roles have come to you that way. So mm. the last thing I saw you in was Othello at the mm. public theater, and I thought you were just magnificent in Thank that role. You. I loved the whole production from start to finish. The whole cast was wonderful. Yeah. I think everybody was on like an even playing field. Yeah. I've never seen Othello done that way. Right. Yeah. And can you tell how that role came to you? And Yeah, I always say in shows like this when we talk, and bless you for saying what you said, but I always say shows like this always seem like, you know, when you look at a picture album, it's always smiles. No one actually talks about the gaps in between the pictures to get you to those smiles on what's going on. Othello is another example of something like this, but I'm just very conscious of your viewers and of the journey of being an artist and how ups and downs it and to say that although we're here talking about the ups i.e the jobs i've done which is all we can talk about we know the downs they have to exist together they're not separate but othello was one of those again a bit like john wick i had just come back from london and i had just worked with evil van hove i went to london to do head a gobbler with evil van hove mm. and then while i was there with the wonderful ruth wilson and rafe spall and all that and while I was there, Evo, on opening night, my agent calls and says, oh, Evo wants you to do his next play with Big Law. So do you want to do it? I was like, yeah, okay. So I did it. And so I did back-to-back plays. And I'd just come from New York and done Hamlet. So I was a bit played out, you know, as far as plays go. I was doing, but the big reason why I moved to the States was to do more film and TV. Mm. And then just towards the end of my stay in London, I got this, TV thing written by the wonderful Abby Morgan called The Split, which is about the world of divorce law. And I loved, and then on the back of The Split, I got Richard Eyre, who's a mentor of mine, Sir Richard Eyre, the great director. He called and said, I'm doing a film of King Lear with Anthony Hopkins. And they offered me a role straight out of it because I want you in it. And then I did it. Then I did this film, Shine Your Eyes. I told you I went to Berlin for in Sao Paulo. So all of a sudden, all this filming, and I was loving it, loving for the first time in my career which is longer than I care to admit, I was getting film work and cutting my teeth on it because practice makes, you got to do it, you know, I need to get better. And so I came back to New York after all that and I was having our year briefing with my manager, Meg, and Meg was like, okay, so what are we doing? I said, Meg, you know, we've got to stay on this film and TV thing. I've got to do more of it. I've got to get more comfortable with it and I need to make money. (laughs) (laughs) and i literally said to her guys this is no lie i said to her look meg honestly unless someone and yes and i had agreed already to do the low road directed by the wonderful michael greif and bruce norris's play at the public i'd agreed to come back and do the low road and i said after the low road meg that's it we're going back to the film and thing i can't turn up this is too good a play too great of any, too great a director. I, it's going to be so great. But practically, I said to her, unless the public call and offer me, I don't know, <laughs> Othello in the park. <laughs> I literally said that to her. I said, honestly, Meg, that's enough of the theater. Unless the public call and say, hey, do you want to do Othello? A week later, that's exactly what happened. 
I hadn't even started rehearsing the low road yet, and they came up and said, "Look, do you want to sit down with Ruben Santiago Hudson?" Oh. And I, I'm a huge—I mean, admire that man. He's yeah. a legend. And so I went in and I met with Ruben, and we spoke for like two hours. Just spoke about it, about the history of Othello. How Othello has always been a vehicle for Iago, right? Yes, you know what I mean. It's always yeah. been a chance for yeah the up and coming hot or the well established hot white guy to show how good he is in the most verbose character in the canon at the expense of Othello, who's a side thought, and certainly at the expense of a Desdemona or an Amelia, all these great roles. And Ruben wanted to readdress that. And I wanted to readdress that because for me, Othello is the greatest love story never written because of the tragedy caused. I think Desdemona and Othello could have been the greatest love story ever, if not for the tragedy. And that's where I wanted to come at it from. I wanted to come out, I said, because look at the structure of the play, guys. The fifth act is the length of the Bible, right? And yeah. kills her at the beginning of the fifth act. Mm-hmm. So why do people want to sit there for another half hour listening to him if he hasn't earned it? If he mm-hmm. hasn't earned, Jesus, you did wrong. You were fool, but you lost a great thing. You've got to earn that love. And he only has a scene and a half to establish that great love story before it all starts falling apart. So me and Ruben are romantics and we understood the politics of it, but we said, we're not gonna focus on the politics. The politics is there when in America, for Christ's sake, in 2018 in America, you, you think we need to tell people about the politics of interracial relationships? No, what we need to deal on is that the tradition of this play, how when Ira Aldridge, another character, I don't know if you've heard of him, was this great American who I'm, I've written a screenplay about, more on that later, but that after Ira Aldridge made Othello as a black man to finally play Othello famous, how all these white performers, the Italian opera singers, everyone wanted to play Othello after mm. Ira Aldridge because he made Othello great. So I'm like, what was it about it that made people think, actually, it's Othello I want to play now. As a white guy, why do I want to come and take away this role and make it mine? So Ruben, that's what we talked about for two hours. And the next day I got a call saying he wants you. And I was like, great. We'll do it because we're on the same page. And this is someone I would trust to take care of me. Just like the reason Ruben hasn't played Othello, which he should have, is because he's never met a director he trusted to take care of Othello in the room and not make it the Iago show. Does that make sense? And I trusted this guy to do that and it delivered. It's one of the hardest. I've always said the greatest role I've ever played is Hamlet, but the hardest role I've ever played is Othello. And it's so rewarding because of that difficulty. That's so interesting. We're going to get to Hamlet in a minute because I, I love the way the public did it with the yes. mobile. But that's what I was saying before about how I thought it was the first production that I'd ever seen of Othello. I haven't seen that many, but that it was an even playing field. Yes. That, and the women were highlighted very much yes. in it as well. Yes. And I loved that. It was a real ensemble piece. It is. As are most of his plays, practically all of his, we get so, I don't know, we look for shortcuts in life and who can blame your young director, your up and coming director and this major star is playing Iago. The stars guaranteed that there'll be butts on the seats. Right. How many people are brave enough to say, okay, I've got that name, but you know, it's about the play, not about him. How many people are brave enough to do that when you've already got a shortcut? You've got a shortcut. 
which says they're all coming to see this guy anyway, or this woman anyway. So that's one of the things I respected about, and also of Corey to Iago, because so generous an actor, Corey Stahl, so generous, didn't come in there thinking this is the show. We were building a story in which he happens to play Iago. And I think a lot of people saw the play in a different light. I think some people didn't buy into it because they're so used to seeing it in a certain light, the winking and the whatever and the buffoon in the middle of it just going crazy, crazy, crazy. It was odd for people to see, Jesus, there's a, there's a love story in there. And that's what we wanted. And Rachel's design and Ruben's eye and the colors mm. and the movement, it was such a sumptuous, it was almost beautiful. It was almost beautiful because of the tragedy, yeah. I would agree. Yeah. It was the most beautiful production of Othello I've ever seen in my life. And okay, yeah, yes. you and Corey together, and the whole cast, it was... Heather Linda's There's the Moon. I mean, just like everyone just brought it and got them and got their highlights. And I just feel that that's what great directors do. They understand. Look, any the actor that says to you, there's no such thing as small parts, there's only small actors, is full of shit. That's someone that's only ever played roles, right? I don't believe it. There are small roles. Right? But it takes a special kind of director to understand that if I focus on the world of the play, if I focus on the story, as opposed to this person or that person, maybe I'll get something out of this that even those audience members don't know they're going to get. It takes a special and a brave one to do that because it's not flashy. It's messy, actually, like the real life. Yeah, and also Ruben being a wonderful actor probably helped Absolutely. you on both sides of it. He knew what actors needed and he knew what actors don't like to hear and he knew what actors need to hear. And he was a great director to have for that project, really. I'm just struck by the fact like you've gotten to work with so many wonderful people and mm. that is clearly about relationship building and how you build relationships and how you show up in relationship in a room and with yeah. people. And so I think for the young actors out there listening to this, can you talk a little bit about that, about how, not even how you go about it. Like I think some of that is just authentic, like you yeah. do, but I'm struck by it, like you're working with Ivo and you're working with Ruben like you've you built like all of these yeah. great partnerships and relationships and how they enrich you and yeah I mean wait, wait, before you answer it I just want to remind our audience to that we are open to with your questions so please go ahead and put your questions in the chat I'm sorry go ahead you know guys 80% of it is luck right let's just put that out there let's just put that out there but that other 20% is what have you done and what do you do and how do you prepare yourself for when that luck strikes? Luck's going to strike everyone at some point. It's a fact. Where are you at when that lightning bolt does strike? And here's a story. My father didn't buy his first pair of shoes till he was 16. And at that point, he'd already been teaching for like two years, teaching and helping raise his seven sisters, younger sisters and younger brother. My mom had to leave school in like sixth grade, despite being top of a class and a super athlete, because she had to help raise her younger sisters and whatever in the village in Nigeria. Yet these two people rose up to senior diplomats with the United Nations and put five kids and God knows how many kids they sponsored and helped through education, the best education possible. They rose that far doing nothing but working hard, believing their faith, very important to them, but working hard and ethic. So I asked myself, I'm born into this, born into the best schools, born into, I was lucky, you know, born in school, went to Yale. And I asked myself, well, 
what the hell's stopping me from going as far as I can? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look at the start I got. What the hell is what the hell is saying I have to have a ceiling of some kind? Nothing, actually. But I can't control the luck or the timing or the director liking me or the fact I can walk into a room and I remind the director of an ex-boyfriend that <laughs> screwed her over to fuck off. You know, excuse me, can I swear on this? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's good, good. Yeah. I can't control all that. What I can control is the first show I did at the RSE in the wings playing tiny parts, watching all the lead actors every night, watching and deciding okay if you think you're better than him why what would you do differently there Mm -hmm. talking to actors that were the city actors at the time that became my friends and mentors like greg hicks and whatever going okay so in coriolanus when you do that so what are you doing with your breath going to extra lessons with cecily berry and whatever it's like just saying i am going to have everything in my arsenal so that if i'm lucky (laughs) i'll be ready and i think that's what performers have to ask themselves is like, yeah, you can sit there and and go, I'm never getting the opportunities and wallow in that. Or you can ask yourself, what am I going to do if the opportunity, if someone dropped that on you right now, that uh, can you be ready in an hour for this? The answer should never be, I don't know. It's like, yes. So it sounds a bit preachy, but what has helped me guide through the luck is that every time the luck and I could go through almost every major job I've done has something divine or uh, magical about it. But I can say that every time it's happened, I've been ready. Wow. And I think that's the big thing artists have to learn. I love that. I don't think it's preachy at all. And I think that's a great lesson and a piece of advice for all the young students that are out there that listen to this podcast. I think that's very, very important. When the time comes and it is your time that you're ready for it. I want to go back a little bit. You've done so much with the public. You did a production of Hamlet with Mm. their mobile. It would go around to prisons and shelters and schools. And can you talk a little bit about your experience and what that was like to go to those institutions? And I love the whole story about it. Joe Papp, that's what he founded the public on. And I was approached by Stephanie Ibarra, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday, Stephanie, who was in charge of the mobile unit at the time. And at the same time, I was having meetings with Oscar Eustis about what we're going to do next, what I'd like to do. And I think I went in to speak to him about doing Coriolanus. But I think Liv Schreiber, someone who's tied to do that, I was like, well, you know, I'd pay to go see that, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but Oscar said, there might be something brewing. Give me a second. And it turned out that something brewing was the Hamlet, the mobile unit for Hamlet. And of course, when someone offers Hamlet, you just go, yes. I mean, it's one of those roles you say yes and then think about logistics afterwards. Because <laughs> the thing about Hamlet is that, and this was why it worked, is that if you're the public or any theater and you're deciding to do Hamlet and you have a director, you shouldn't be saying, okay, now let's go find our Hamlet. I think Hamlet is one of those roles where you decide this person is a Hamlet and then you make the production happen. You have to go backwards. It's just one of those roles that if the director doesn't feel that's my Hamlet, you can't manufacture that. You can't hope to find that. You can't hope that if I do enough auditions, I'll find them. It can't just be about, oh, let's go. It has to be like, okay, I'd like to do Hamlet with you. (laughs) That's how the conversation should go for a role like that. So Patricia McGregor was up for doing it with me. She was like, yeah. So we just started talking. And as she was talking about it, it was around the first round of Black Lives Matter, that first round in 2016, that, that almost fire that lit. 
And Almost. I was looking at it. I was looking and we were talking about it and we were talking about the whole thing about Hamlet is being let down by those people you most trusted and loved, which is essentially the American tragedy as well as the American in the words of James Baldwin, the American triumph has always been tied into the American tragedy, which was to make black people despise themselves. So I was talking to her, I was like, look, I want to do this Hamlet. I can see this Hamlet, but it's important for you to know that I am not American, <laughs> as you know. My point is there are a lot of actors you could find that this thing, this thing going on now about see me as a black man in America, whereas I understand it. I live here and I'm empathetic and I know it. I was born in Nigeria, a country that I own. Mm -hmm. I came to America of my own choice as part of the highest educational institution, Yale. That's why I was here. It was my choice. Am I the right guy to carry this torch? And if you say, yes, I'll do it. But I would understand if you don't. And she said, yes. She says, the very fact you're asking that question means that you have to be the microphone to tell the story. And from the moment she said that, I launched into what to this day, and I've had some amazing theater experiences. It's up there with the most singularly impactful for me as a person and as an actor doing that show. And the reason for that is the backstory I just gave you, but taking that show to prisons, can you imagine guys mm. about to do to be or not to be and I'm tying a thing around your arm to shoot yourself up and end it. And I look out in Rikers prison and there's a guy, big guy, must be six, four. He's been watching the show like this the whole time. And then when I go to do this and go to be or not to be, he just goes, This is a guy that might not see the light of day again. Yeah. And on the rooftop of this prison in Manhattan, it was 95. It had to be over 100 degrees easily. And all these guys in their orange jumpsuits were doing that. And Claudius has betrayed me. And they're going, should I do it now? Should I do it now when he's there kneeling and I'm behind him? And these guys go. And then a women's homeless shelter, one of the first shows we did, it was a homeless shelter and I started to be or not to be and a woman from the back said, that is the question. Where did she, somewhere, high school, I don't know. Whatever her history was, she knows that line. She knows that speech. So that show, finally playing Hamlet in that environment with a raw immediacy and communion that you will never, I'm sorry, get in a theater going audience. You just can't. And it's not to blame anyone. It's just not their experience. They're not in jail. They're not in a, in a cell looking for freedom, asking questions. Of how do I get here? How did the system let me down? How did, the, how did I let down the people that love me? How did I kill that person? Till you've done Hamlet and who asks himself all those questions to people that have asked them and are living that question, you've never done Hamlet. Mm. So by the time we brought that back to the theater, and you're doing it for the regular audience, the ghosts of all those guys we've done the show with on the road came into the room and it was the most electric, wow. most electric. And I've done a lot of shows, I can't count them, but I can tell you it's the first role I've ever played that I, A, I want to play again, or B, that by the end of the run, I felt there was so much more I still wanted to do with it. And that's because of that communion. What I loved about it, 
the concept of it is that it really mirrored what was going on in 2016 when the Black Lives Matter thing started. But can you imagine now, can you talk a little bit? And, and John, I know you had some questions about that. So why don't you Yeah, know? talking about that moment here, I'm just very curious as to how is that playing out in the UK? What is the temperature on the ground there with that? I always kind of go, oh, the UK is much more open to that. And I'm like, mm, yeah, you saw the riots uh, yeah. George Floyd. You saw the marches, not riots, that's what people want to call them, but the marches and the protests in London, in Paris, yeah, in yeah. Berlin. Yeah. The UK has been doing it longer, you know. <laughs> the Europe has been doing it longer, several centuries longer than in America. So it has found a way of being more institutionalized and more subtle, but just as insipid and just as dangerous. And I think the weakness, I guess it came as less of a surprise in America because it's so in your face. Mm. But the impact was just as powerful in Europe. And I think people were surprised that, wow, I, 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 I didn't know. <laughs> I think in Europe, there are a lot of people that genuinely didn't know they might be prejudiced. Because it's so, it's like when I was in school and I was the first head boy of my school. That's like your school president, the first mm -hmm. black one. Mm -hmm. And some, one of the governors comes up in complete sincerity and says, the way you speak English, wow. You know what I mean? That's what I'm talking about. A complete lack of awareness that here in the States, the rawness of it, the immediacy of it. I don't think you can pretend to be that naive here in the States as generations have taught people in Europe to be naive. You don't have that luxury of time here to be that naive. And it's weird for me because I, I come from Nigeria and then you go from Nigeria to England with its weird thing, but I'm sort of in a this yeah. elite place in England. And then you come to America and then I go to Yale, so I'm not going south. You know, I mean, right. liberal, you know. And then I moved to New York and then I moved to London. It's very easy for me to see how people don't clock it because yeah. you're really moving around with people who would never consider themselves that. And for the most part, a lot of them aren't. Let me just put that here is that some of the most open, beautiful, genuinely honest people I've met in my life I've met in America. So let's just like get that out there. Mm -hmm. But those circles are the ones that are most surprised when they find, oh my God, I had prejudice. Because mm. you're not supposed to, right? But till you address it, till you actually say, do you realize what you just said? Some people genuinely think they're the most open until you address it, you know? Yes. What's your hope going forward with all of the reckoning? And what are the steps? What are the actions that are happening there with like the we see you or, you know, all yeah, any I mean, of that? Before COVID, there was necessary and big steps being taken towards redefining appropriation, right? <laughs> there were a lot of steps going forward with saying, what does it mean to really support this black artist in this theater? What does it really mean to have a black season? How far are you willing to really delve into opening this up? Is it just the performers that we start opening it up to people of color, all color, or are we gonna start opening it up at the people who decide the season? Mm. Or is it just the talent? <laughs> what about the executive, the board members and stuff? And also on our part, is like minorities and stuff have become a bit jaded about these institutions. I'm sure there are a lot of theaters that would like to invite, but people are like, why am I going to join your institution? It's so white, you're only going to go do another season of Noel Coward. Or worse, you're only going to go do another season of Shakespeare. Because Shakespeare, from the time kids of color were little, has been something that belonged to white people. Mm. Juliet can only be blonde. If you're Latina, you're probably 
probably going to get the nurse if you're lucky. So there is this whole thing that the conversation had started. And I hope that with the relief of post-COVID and vaccines and getting people back in the seats, we don't go back to where we started right. and that we keep that thing going on. You know, James Baldwin, I keep coming back to Baldwin because we'll talk about it, but I'm attached to play him. And one of the things that Baldwin, he says, the poet is called to defeat all labels and complicate all battles, he says, to bear witness as long as the faith is in him, as long as the breath is in him, to that mighty, unnameable, transfiguring force which lives in the soul of man, and to aspire to do his work so well that when the breath has left him, the people, all people, who search for a sign of him in the rabble will find him there. We've got to challenge everything. Wow. That's what we do as artists. And as long as we have the faith <laughs> and as long as we have the breath, we will be able to leave our fingerprints in everything we do. So I think the journey forward to Ansi John is that I genuinely think that the time is now because I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Does the revolution on the streets come before revolution on stage or does because mm. of the stage things happening? I don't know which comes first, but right now there's something happening. <laughs> We've had so many false starts, but there's something definitely happening. And so it's time to bear witness, as Baldwin would say, it's time to bear witness with the work. And we have to see if this establishment, the established ones, are ready to open up, to put their money where their mouth is, because there's so many artists ready to take on that mantle. I just think that just as we hope this latest round of Black Lives Matter means something legislatively and all that stuff, we can hope that this latest round of awareness in theater isn't just a flash in the pan either. That's yeah. my hope. But I definitely think that, as Baldwin said, I definitely aspire to do my work so well that when the breath has left me the people and all people who search for a sign of me in the rabble will find me there that's my part yeah i think john and i agree there i don't think there's any turning back now either there is a fire burning and the fire is high it's so high and it's so aware and it's so international now it's mm. like been embraced in a, such an international way walt whitman the wonderful eddie glaude whose book begin again Mm -hmm. on James Baldwin is the, we just got the rights to it for this TV show of Baldwin that we're doing. He mentions how Walt Whitman uh, talked about how there was false dawns after the revolution. There was one after the revolution about, then there was one after the civil war. And then there were, he talks about, are we going to do that again? Have another false dawn? Because don't forget, it was supposed to be Obama. Before that, it was supposed, yes. to, be, it was supposed to be 1968, but that thing hasn't happened yet. And that is that false post-racial America. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So can you talk a little bit about the Baldwin Project or it's... it's yeah, the wonderful and producer friend. Again, when I, was doing, <laughs> when I was doing John Wick, so I flew over to Italy to do John Wick, right? So on the first day of filming, my first day of filming is with Common. So Common comes out of his trailer and I say, hey, we say, how are you doing? And then he looks at me and he goes, man. You remind me of James Baldwin. I was like, oh my God. Because for the last two years I've been in New York, people on the street would stop me and go, has anyone told you you can't <laughs> in the subway, this woman, I remember this woman in New York in the subway getting off the train and just going, James Baldwin. I was like, what the hell is going on? And so Common says that to me. So I call this producer friend of mine, Erica Motley. I said, Erica, 
what's this thing about James Bond? Because he hadn't at that point traveled much beyond America as far as my education in England. Hell, he hadn't been featured much in the education here in the States, period. Yeah, yeah. And she flipped because she's a huge Baldwin fan. So on that day, which was January 2016, she started and we started putting the plan together to doing a mini series, a limited series of James Baldwin. And it's taken that amount. We've got Sarah Green, the wonderful producer who did Tree of Life and all that stuff. She's our producer. We've got the wonderful Bradford Young, who's the cinematographer, Ava DuVernay, who did When They See Us and Star Wars. Bradford is on, but he's a huge Baldwin fan to direct. I'm attached to play it. And then we got the rights for Eddie Glod's Begin Again, the book on which we're basing it on. So that's very exciting because, you know, there's thousands of us out there, guys. It feels weird to say it, given how much more demand there is than there is supply in our line of work. But ultimately, there's so many of us, so many of us doing projects at one time. Lots of projects that are great, that will give a lot of joy to people and excitement and you'll make a living and it's great. But it comes back to that thing about my parents again. You go, okay, I can work. I can work. I'm at a point now where I'm not worried about working. I'm not worried about the next job. What the hell am I doing here? Mm. Why am I allowed to work? Why have things aligned in the way to allow me to do? Is it just to work? Or is it a chance to create a rabble that's worth sifting through later on? Does that make sense? Projects like Baldwin, and I've written a screenplay about Ira Aldrich that we're looking to develop. And these are things, they all go hand in hand with what I'm doing here with James Gunn. They all go hand in hand. This is a dream. I mean, the kid in Lagos, Nigeria that grew up staring at a, trying to move a teacup with the force because I'd watched Star Wars, is very happy to be here in Vancouver about to do a DC Marvel thing. Don't get me wrong. It's not all about just, but you've got to ask yourself, why you? And what do you want to do? And so when you ask those questions, those are the questions that stop you from settling. It's the journey, right? You might not get there. Baldwin might not get made. Something gets in the works. Ira might not get made. But my God, it's the journey, right? Unless you try to do it, it's never going to happen, right? So yeah, it's all very exciting. It's an exciting time, definitely. From the audience, what inspires you as an actor? I was lucky enough. There were a lot of things I could have done. Ask my parents, asking me what I want to be growing up. There were a lot of things I could have done. I got a degree in economics from, I could have gone at Yale. I could have done several things. I, there was a time I wanted to be a vet. There's so many things I could have done. What inspires me as an actor is that, is that kid in Lagos, that the games I played as a kid were not imaginary games. The games I remember playing as a kid were reenactments of things that seen on TV. That scene from Star Trek that scene from Superman, that scene from whatever. You're doing your stuff and your head is buried in the here and the now and the work and getting the next job and the temp jobs in between the job and then you get a gig and then you work with this star and then one day you're working with Tom Hanks? I saw, mm. him, I saw him in Big, in <laughs> suburbs of Lagos, jumping on a piano. Or the next day you're doing King Lear with Anna Benning? Oh my God. Or the next day you're, and then you're sitting down next to Anthony Hopkins and you're doing a speed run of Hamlet to be or not to be just for fun with Anthony Hopkins. And he's calling you on your phone because he's just heard, he called me on my phone. It was 8 a.m. in the morning in New York. So 5 a.m. in LA. The announcement had just gone out. I was going to play Othello. He called me to talk about Othello. I'm on the phone for 45 minutes with Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know what I mean, guys? You talk about what inspires you is realizing you're allowed to dream. That's what inspires me. You're allowed to dream. Oh. We have uh, a <laughs> beautiful answer. We have one more from the audience. What do you like most about working in theater versus TV and film? Theater is, <laughs> there's no, can I do a second take? <laughs> there's something that happens. I like to get to the theater at at least two hours before curtain. And I'll spend an hour of that, hour and a half of that, just warming up and stretching and running through my lines and walking through the space and the noise with the realization that in about 90 minutes, it's going to be packed full of strangers and they're all here to see you. <laughs> and that once you get on stage and start, you have to stay on the train. There's something and then something like that Hamlet thing I said happens where you're speaking and you know every single one is with you for that two hours. You can't get that in film and TV. Film and TV, the magic of it is like, we just described what inspires me about it. And mm. you do a take and then you watch it later and you're like, oh my God. And you're like, it's amazing. And there's the minutia, you know, like you can do, that's all that. But there's something about live theater. It's that, they're there. And you can hear the buzz of the audience over the tunnel. You're in your dressing room and you're, you can hear them. They're there. They made a point to come there that night after work or flew in or whatever. They made a point of that to come see that. And then you start. And then you have to almost forget all that. And then it's that immediate communion, which there's just no other way. You can't manufacture that on a camera and there's other things you manufacture on a camera that I friggin love. I love being able to just speak like this and not think of projecting. <laughs> I love being able to know that it's going to come at this angle and this angle and we can play around with it. I know there's takes, there's so many beautiful, and then the fact that it's captured on film, like you are now part of that history on film, but the immediacy and the communion of theater, it both terrifies you and it invigorates you. And unless it's your home, unless it's your home, I completely get why people don't want it and hate it and are scared of it. And <laughs> but if it's your home, you get it, you miss it, you want it. Yeah. It's like yeah. electricity. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Actual feeling of it. I could sit and talk with you for hours. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm a very big fan. I think your work is just beautiful and precise and you're a real chameleon of some sort. And I can't wait to see what you do next. With that, I say goodbye to our esteemed guest. I thank, thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, John, for being yeah. my host again today. <laughs> it felt electric to me. I've learned so much. I just love that this Nigerian boy has become a citizen of the world <laughs> and I can't wait to see all of the other little boys that you inspire to become citizens of the world. This was absolutely fantastic talking Incredible. with you. Today. Thank you so Thank much. You. Good night, guys. Thanks for having me. And that's our show. On Monday, February 1st, John, Andrew, and I will interview the prolific, multi-talented Krista Rodriguez. Last week, I listed all her credits, and I'm still tired from that. But in addition to sharing her experiences on stage, I will be asking her about her upcoming Ryan Murphy project, Halston. Very exciting. Join us Monday, February 1st, if you can, at 7 p.m. on our website, liveatthelortel.com. Otherwise, the podcast will be available starting that Friday, February 6th. After that, we have some surprises for you. As soon as they are confirmed, we will let you know. And trust me, 
there are some really exciting guests on the horizon. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations, and our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. Live at the Lortel is recorded online by Bryant Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening.